good to be here sharing God's word again and it was a blessing to have brother Chris this last week it was a uh, wonderful message uh, that he shared and he's always a uh, it's always a blessing to hear that gospel message go go out strongly so it was a blessing uh, to have him here um, but it's uh, also a blessing for me to be able to share God's word with you again so we're going to look at the passage brother Bryden read for us this morning which is Genesis chapter 12 we're going to work our way through that passage today as we continue our look at the lives of Abraham and Lot in that comparison. And the goal today is hopefully to understand a bit better what the way faith works and the way tests work and trials work in our lives to actually reveal our faith and learn from them. So Genesis chapter 12, we'll just read the first three verses to start off with. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll commit this time to him. Father, we thank you once again for this time that we have to stand the word, but Father, to take it within ourselves in a way that would transform our thinking and our hearts. And so we, we seek to do this, not for ourselves, but for your glory. And we ask for your blessing upon us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the devil's most successful ploys that I have seen over the years uh, with people, specifically believers, is to convince them that they have nothing much to offer, that they're not that important, that they have little value with respect to the kingdom of God and how other people around them might grow in the faith. He does a great job of convincing people that their choices don't make that much of a difference and that they should be self-focused more than anything else. That this is really, once you enter in relationship with Christ, this is now all about you. Well, it's not. And we need to be very wary of this particular tactic that he uses to dull us and to make us ineffective in our walk. Because if I, if I get saved and I finally come to the place or the realisation in my life that I need to be saved and that I'm a sinner and that I'm going to hell because that is my very nature. And I need to be rescued not just from my sin but from myself. If at that particular point I put my trust in Jesus to, get, to grant me eternal life and then spend the rest of my life worrying about me, and thinking about me and that this is all about me now, I have missed the, the obvious point that it's not about me. And the devil does a wonderful job. Once he has lost a particular person, he can't win them back. We know through scripture that once you are saved, you can't be lost again. So he's lost you. He can't get you back. But what he can do is to get you so self-focused, to get you so inward-looking, that everything is about you and he knows because he's a master psychologist 
But the more you focus on yourself, and I focus on myself, the more we look inside, the more we aren't going to like what we see. And the more discontent we're going to be. And the more unhappy, and the more confused we're going to get. You see, when you take your eyes off Jesus, and you have it you have them firmly focused upon yourself and everything that you don't have and everything that you do have and where you're trying to get to and how this is all about you, all of a sudden you forget that the main command, okay, also the main two commands that encompass all the, all the commands in the Bible are thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul and strength. It's not loving yourself. No, Whitney Houston wasn't right Learning to love myself is not, the, not the, the thing that I have to learn because people naturally love themselves. It comes natural to us. In fact, we spend most of our times loving ourselves. Our ego can't help but love ourselves. And so we need to understand the trap the devil sets for us because the moment you, you put yourself first in that love relationship, then you forget the first one that you're called to love. But then you also forget about the second, which is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You see, the, the whole thing about loving yourself is, is, is automatic with us. And so we begin to think in our lives and in our hearts that, you know what, I've got nothing really to offer church. You know, it's not really important. You know, the pastor does all the preaching at the front, and there's some people who sing really well, and, and there's some people who are good at evangelism, but you know, I've got nothing really that I can offer God. There's nothing really, no one's looking at me. And you know what? I don't want them looking at me. Because the moment if they begin looking at me, if I put myself out there in front of everyone, that's the moment they're going to realize that I've got problems. And I've got sins I'm struggling with too. So let me just stay in a nice, quiet corner, away from everyone else, and you know what? I'll be happy like that. That's not what we're called to do. You know, we Baptists don't see anywhere in the Bible a place where you set up a monastery and you lock yourself away from the world. I haven't seen a place in the Bible that says, thou shalt lock thyself away in self-contemplation in a place away from the rest of the world because that's the most important thing to actually grow yourself i don't see any of that any of that in the bible nowhere in fact the bible tells us that we are called to be lights in the world it says that we are a city on a hill it says that we we should not cover our lights with a, a basket or a bushel but the easiest thing to do is to lock yourself away whether you do that in a monastery or whether you do that metaphorically in your life because you say, I have nothing to offer and you don't offer anything to anyone else, all you're doing is spending your whole life filling up your own self, the devil has achieved the same purpose. If you can keep the believer from actually not doing anything, from not exercising their faith, he has achieved the same result in the world than if you were never born again in the first place. You know, we're looking at the lives of Abraham and Lot. And we're going to see through their choices, their faith or lack of it. You see, every one of us is at a different level of faith. Some of us are, are stronger in the faith, some are weaker in the faith, but none of us are perfect in the faith. None of us. And so we're all seeking to grow. 
maybe we're all seeking to grow. We've all been called to grow. And faith grows. And God is our perfect teacher and he teaches us what level of faith we're at. And how does he do that? Well, he lets us go through certain trials. He lets us go through certain refining fires that become very uncomfortable. And the way we respond to that fire and that tribulation or that trial or that persecution or that or that problem in our life reveals to us what level of faith we have. If we would just take the time to think about it. My hope in this particular series is that we will learn what it means to have strong faith. And that our faith indeed would become stronger because God is actually teaching each and every one of us lessons in our lives. And the question is whether we have our eyes open and our ears open to hear what he is teaching us. Choices have consequences. And whether you choose not to make a choice about something, whether you choose to avoid the choice is still making a choice. If God is calling you to go and speak or to do something and you say, I'm not going to do anything, you've made a choice. And that choice will not just affect your faith, it will affect the faith of everything we do, everything we say, every action we partake in or don't partake in will affect not just ourselves, whether our faith grows or whether it doesn't, but it actually affects the people that are watching us. You see, the, God, the classroom that God has set up is actually quite an extensive one. We are not confined to a small classroom by ourselves. You see, there are other people that are watching us and learning at the same time. And this is the lesson that we also learn in today's um, passage. Now, last time we, I shared this, uh, this sermon, which is the first one, the introduction of this particular series, we learned two important things. And we looked at Hebrews chapter 11 and Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we learn from that, that faith is foundational to our hope. If you have little or no faith, you won't have the hope that's attached to it. If you don't really believe that Jesus is preparing a place for you so that you can be together for the rest of eternity, you won't have that hope. But if that's a strong faith that you have, then that hope will be attached to that faith. What level of faith you have will change what level of hope you have. And that is a reason also for us to strengthen our faith. If you strengthen your faith, if you learn from God's classroom, then your hope will be stronger. And as the Apostle Peter says, people around us will see the hope that's within us. And then we are called to give a reason for that hope to them. Also, we are told in Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It's impossible to please God if you don't believe in him. First of all, obviously, how can you please someone you don't believe in? But the second part of that particular verse says that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Not diligently seek to do works, but diligently seek him. And the reward that he gives for those who seek him is himself. That is the reward that we receive. And there is no greater reward than you and I can ever obtain than him. When Jesus granted us eternal life, we might think, oh, that's, it. that's life as in I get to live forever. 
Uh, you would have lived forever anyway. You just would have lived in a place that was without God. You see, the gift of eternal life is God giving us himself for eternity. You get to enjoy, you and I get to enjoy him for all of eternity. That's what it means to have eternal life because eternal life without God, without Jesus, is not life at all. God grants you himself as a reward. And so last time we looked at this introduction and we looked at the course of events that led Abram to begin to move his family and possessions out of, out of um, uh, Ur of the Chaldees toward a place that he didn't know anything about. God had revealed himself to Abram. God promised him, he made a promise, and he said, I'm going to grant you that land for you and all of your descendants, and through you I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And ultimately, that blessing to all of the families of the earth came when Jesus Christ was born, because Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. And through that, all of the families of the earth have been blessed. So Abraham leaves his hometown, leaves the people that he knows, and he begins to travel to Canaan with his father, who was over 200 years old, mind you, and uh, his nephew, Lot. They, they grab all their belongings, their wives and whatever else they had, and their, and their servants and, and flocks, and they begin this thing, and they reach a place called Haran. And something happens at Haran. They stop. They don't make it all the way to Canaan. And what happens there is that Terah eventually dies. His father doesn't make it all the way. And so this is where we are at at the moment. So if you turn to Genesis 12, 1, they, they were in Haran by the looks of it for quite a while because they'd actually gained more while they were there. But now Terah has actually passed away. And God calls Abram again, and he says the same things to him. And in verse 1, he says of Genesis 12, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You know, God made some amazing promises to Abraham when you think about it. It wasn't just one promise. This is like a whole group of promises all that are linked together. He promises him he's going to be a great nation. In other words, he's going to create a whole new race of people through him. So there may have been the Chaldeans, there may have been the Babylonians, there may have been the Assyrians, there may have already been uh, the Philistines, and there may have been the Canaanites. But God was going to make a whole new group of people. And he says to Abraham, you're going to be the father of a completely new nation. That's a big promise, isn't it? That's huge. And then he says he's going to make his name great or famous. And I think he's done that. I think the Lord's come through with that one, don't you think? Abraham is revered by the majority of people in this world. He's revered by not just Christians, but Jews and even Muslims. God said he would make Abraham a blessing to everyone in the world as well. 
So that also has been achieved. Despite these very great promises, Abraham knew that he wouldn't get to see them all in his lifetime. In fact, he saw very little of them in his lifetime. He didn't get to see the whole nation started. He didn't get to see the, the saviour that was to come into the world that, you know, that, uh, that was going to bless all the nations. I, I suspect he saw him in that place called Abraham's bosom, though, when Jesus went and spoke with him. And Jesus actually says, your father Abraham longed to see this day, and, and he saw it. So I think he understood what was going on. But we know that even though Abraham, when he went to Canaan, was never settled there, he didn't get to see all the promises fulfilled, he trusted God and he obeyed him. And now he was, just as he had moved out of Ur of the Chaldees, he's moving out of Haran. And this time, without his dad. It's just him, his wife, the stuff that he has, his servants, and his nephew with his, with his family or his goods. Look at verse 5. Nabram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Did they arrive at their destination? Yeah. They did. They arrived at their destination. And while they were in Haran during that, during that stopover, they actually increased in their goods and increased in people as well. You know, what's interesting about this, it says that they, the souls that they had gotten in Haran, there's no indication here that they actually had more kids or anything like that. They may have increased in people that had joined them in terms of servants, okay, who said, we're coming with you or we're going to work for you. You know when you go for a job these days? Um, most people want to know what they're going to get paid, right? I mean, who gets a job and doesn't even know what they're going to get paid? They might pay you $10, I don't know. And most people would want to know what the conditions of the job are going to be like. Most people want to know, you know, what the working hours are and what about job security? Am I going to get to be here for a while or is this only a temporary thing? Abram managed to attract people while he was in Haran to join him to go to a place he didn't know anything about. So you can imagine the situation where he's got him, he, Lot, and they got their flocks and stuff, and he's managed to you go, people coming to him, and he goes, you want work? Come and, come and work with me, or come and work for me, and I'll look after you. Oh, where are you, where are you doing? You're settled in here in Haran. Oh, no, no, we're, we're heading off towards Canaan. Oh, whereabouts in Canaan? I know that place. Oh, I've got no idea. Um, okay, uh, what are you going to do when you get there? I don't know. Um, wh wh why are you going there? Oh, God told me to go there because he's going to give me all that land as a possession for me. Oh, really? Um, would you join someone like that? You'd think you must be pretty convinced to join someone to move to join that particular group of people to work under someone like Abram and be ready to move to a place that he doesn't even know where he's going. Which means you had to be pretty convinced that the God that he's following actually is legit. That he's not some loony that's going to end up getting you killed. So I think that's in and of itself is, a, is a, quite an argument to say that Abraham was quite open about his faith. 
And he even convinced people that this is the God worth following, even if you don't know where you're going exactly. Did he reach Canaan? Yes, he did. Look at verse 6. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sikkim, unto the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. So Abraham reached a place called Sikkim. And if you're wondering if that's the same place called Shechem, you're right. It's the same place. Shechem would later be the place after many years, um, after Israel was saved from Egypt and entered into the promised land, that Joshua gathered all the elders of the thing and said, choose to serve God. Put away your idols. And now that we've got the promised land, let's choose to serve God. Shechem, the same place. Actually, it's the same place that Jesus spoke to that woman at the well. That was later called Sikar. Okay, so in John four four, you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it quickly for you. And he and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sikar. That's Shechem. That's Sikar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well and it came and it was about the sixth hour there cometh a woman of samaria to draw water jesus saith unto her give me to drink that's there so abraham a long long time before had reached this particular place in the promised land and even though he had entered that land it wasn't cleared it was filled with people already the Canaanites were already living there. And he comes to a place called Morah, the plain of Morah. And here God appears to him again. And he gets to this place and it says in verse 7, And the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, I keep on saying Abraham, but it's actually not. It's Abram. Okay. And said, Unto thy seed will I give this land and there built he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. So now he was in the land. You'll notice God's words have changed. He said, I will give unto thy seed will I give this land. This land that he was already walking around in. And this particular place, he does something interesting. He builds an altar. And that particular place, he builds an altar as a memorial of him having seen God again. God appears to him. We don't know exactly what he saw. It doesn't describe it here. But he, if you remember, there was another place later on where God appears to him again as three men. Okay, there's God who comes in the form of a, of a man. And there are two angels with him as, as well. So maybe God appeared to Abraham in the form of a man. And I suspect this is what we call the pre-incarnate Christ. Before he was born in the world, Christ appeared to him. That's what I suspect. Okay. And so he's offered, most likely offering a sacrifice on this altar. But this, this altar was mostly a memorial of this amazing encounter that he's had with God and a testimony to others about his faith in this particular God. And verse 8 says, and he removed from thence, so he's, he's, he's built this altar, he's worshipped God there, he's remembered what's happened to him at that particular place. And it says, and from thence, from that place, unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, 
and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Okay, that's interesting. A uh, couple of verses. So Abram then continues to travel south and, and pitches at a place between Bethel, and Bethel means the house of God. And Bethel was the place where Jacob, if you remember, when he slept on, that, on those rocks, and he sees the angels going up and down on a ladder. And Ai, Hai, which is mentioned here, is the same place as Ai, which actually Israel lost a battle to when they um, were, um, let's say, influenced or, or they had a problem with the sin of Achan. So Abraham builds another altar here. And he worships the Lord. And in this particular place, he calls on the name of the Lord. See the word Lord in your Bible? He's calling on his name now. That's the name of God in that place. And that's that particular L-O-R-D is what's referred to as a tetragrammaton, which is the four letters of God, which is Y-H-W-H is the place we get the name Jehovah from. Okay. So let's continue. Abraham continues to travel south through Canaan, obviously surveying all this place, all this land that God's given him, learning more about it and what's there. And he's actually building altars as he's going along with every encounter he has with the Lord. Um, do you remember, and I've shared this with you before, what the promised land is a picture of for the believer? Is it a picture of heaven? not the promised land is not a picture of heaven no it's not a picture of heaven because there are still enemies in the land there are still issues in the land he hasn't he's still a sojourner in that particular land so when you look at the the things of the of the old testament and you're trying to picture what does it mean for us and is it a picture of something for us today the promised land is not a picture of heaven because in almost all those places they had to keep on fighting even when Israel moved into the promised land with, with their probably two million people, they had to fight. And did they, did they end up winning all their battles? No, they fought. I would hope that when we get to heaven, we're not going to be fighting. Verse 9 says, by faith, sorry, Hebrews 11, 9, because Abraham, even though... He was in the land that God promised him. It says that he was like a sojourner. He was like someone who didn't belong there. Okay, He was like someone who couldn't settle down because he pitched his tents. He was living in tents. He wasn't living in cities. He didn't build a nice brick home like many of us have and you know, settle there for a long time. He was living in tents. And so did Isaac. So did Jacob. But Hebrews 11.9 says, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, he knew that wasn't heaven. He knew that wasn't, that wasn't his final place that he was going to, going to rest in. No, he was looking for something else. He was looking for a city that God was the builder of. And if you remember, and if you recall, Jesus is promising that he's preparing a place for us. And there's a place called New Jerusalem, 
which will one day come down from heaven. And I'm looking forward to that, to be honest with you. Because that's come, that's, that, the foundations of that, the builder of that is God. The builder of that city is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So Abram was like a sojourner, a pilgrim <coughs> in that land. But there's a promise here, which is a state of our salvation. The, the picture that the promised land is for us is us today. If you're born again, if you've received Christ as your saviour, then you are in the promised land. And in that promised land, God is telling you to fight. The Bible tells that each, each and every one of us is fighting or is meant to fight the good fight. That good fight, and God promises you you can conquer the land, is the terrain of our hearts. Because there are things in our hearts, and remember, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And that is what, who we are contending with. And God promises to lead us in that particular place and to give us victory over all those things. So remember, when you're talking about the promised land, when you think about the promised land, that's the state of a believer when they're saved. We have this fight going on inside us, but God can grant us the victory over those weaknesses and sins which are pictured by the Canaanites. So remember that um, we often fail to move forward and have true joy because oftentimes we aren't fighting the fight and we're not learning the lessons. And God's telling us at each point, follow me, do what I, I be obedient and I will give you victory. Um, there's an interesting thing that Abraham does. He sets up altars at particular places where he has an encounter with God. And he does that for a specific reason, I believe. Not just to worship him at that particular point. But one thing I'm going to guarantee you is that when Abraham does the journey on the way back and he passes by that same altar, what's it going to, what's it going to trigger in him? He's going to remember what he did there. He's going to remember what happened there. So... This is like a picture for us. When we go through times in our lives that we feel maybe defeated and then God comes through and answers a prayer for us, yeah, it's a good idea to actually mark that one down, to write it down, to remember it. It's a bit like the Lord's table. huh? Every time we come to this particular place and we look at the bread, we, we look at that, that juice, we're reminded about what Christ has done for us. Now, each one of us has a different road we've traveled. Every one of us is in a different position. We have had different encounters with God along our lives. We have won various things. You've won victories that I haven't won. And I failed things that you haven't failed in. But in each of those things, it's good for us to remind ourselves where we've come, from where we've come. So we can actually encourage ourselves and not forget the things that the Lord has done for us already. We don't go building altars everywhere we go. But what we can do is keep a journal of where God has answered our prayers or important things that we have learned. I know many of us take notes in our Bibles. huh? I think it's a good thing. 
I think a Bible should be a living document for us. In other words, it's, it's, it's God's eternal word, but we can write what God showed me in this particular place. Because, you know, when next time you go to that same passage, God may show you something else. And it shows us where, how we are progressing and how we're growing. So take notes. Keep a journal. Keep a diary. Remind yourself of the things that God has done for you. When we do good works, I'll tell you something else. You know, instead of building an altar, when you do something good for someone else, or when you teach someone some biblical principle, you share something from your life that's encouraged them, and then you see them actually grow, they become a living memorial for you. Does that make sense? So you can surround yourself with people and memorials of how God worked through you to actually bless them. Part of the blessings I have as a pastor when I'm in ministry is I get to help people. I never do it perfectly. There's, all, there's never enough time. But the things that blesses me, the things that bless me, is when I see I share something with someone, I'm giving them counsel, I'm trying to encourage them, and then they take another step in the right direction. That for me is a huge blessing. That becomes a living memorial for me. That God is at work. That God continues to bless. And amazingly enough, he can use someone like me. And he can do the same for you. We are to remind ourselves constantly of how God works through us. And so here we now see God, Abraham's first real test. He's coming to the promised land. He's remembering God. He's reminding himself how God's you know, led him to this place and the promises that he's given him. But look at Genesis 12.10. And understand that Egypt is a picture of the world. Okay, when, you, when he goes into Egypt, he's in the world. And the question is now how he's going to respond to that. Genesis 12.10 says, And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. So the famine in Canaan, so get this, Abram reaches a, a, a place where God's promised him, surveys the land, thanks God for it, and then there's a famine. You might say, well, God, why did you let a famine happen when I was just beginning to enjoy it? What's interesting is that the same thing gets repeated again. You see, the reason Jacob and his sons went into Egypt and Joseph was already waiting there was there was a famine in the land. So the same thing happens again later on. But this passage makes it clear that Abraham wasn't going to Egypt to live there or to abandon the, the hope that he had in Canaan. He realized Mate, there's no food at the moment. We're going to have to make a detour and move to a place where there is some food. And it says that he went to Egypt to sojourn. To sojourn means he's not there permanently. So he expected it to be only for a limited amount of time. And the question you might ask yourself, well, why would God allow this? Doesn't God have control over the weather? Doesn't God actually, you know, uh, allow or, and produce the fruit? Doesn't God promise he's going to provide for all of your needs? Well, he does. Of course he, he can. But this was obviously a test for Abraham. To see how he would respond. God will allow us to go through various trials and tests in our lives. Times when things are just not comfortable. When things aren't going well. 
But in every trial, God has designed a lesson to be learned and for our faith to be strengthened. So for us, whatever difficulty you may be going through, God is allowing you to go through that for your good, for you to grow. The question is going to be whether we are going to look for the lesson in the suffering, okay, or whether we're going to mope about our condition. And this lesson, I will guarantee you, is not just about you. This lesson will not only teach you, teach you something, but is designed to help teach others as well through you. And this is what we learned in this particular lesson as well with, uh, with Abram. So verse 11, we read the passage that Bryden read for us this morning. It says in verse 11, And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. So she must have been good looking. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. So I pray thee, I pray thee means please, um, say thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. So he's gone, he's going into Egypt. He's, mind you, Sarah's at least over 60 at this particular point. All right, so she's over 60 years of age at least, and she's still considered a beautiful woman. And Abraham knew it. And so you might think, well, does Abraham just make this up out of, the, out of the blue? Did he just come up? Well, no, probably not. He'd probably heard other stories about what had happened to other people who had gone into Egypt or had, or had suffered similar types of circumstances. And so the Egyptians probably had a reputation for lasciviousness as well and finding ways to get what they wanted. So I suppose... You can see, but they at least appreciated the permanency of the marriage vow. You know, till death do us part. And if I can get rid of the husband, everything starts all over again. So what's going on? Did Abraham here orchestrate a lie to save himself from being a victim of the Egyptians? Well, the answer to that is yes. Well, half and half. He makes up, or he, you know, to conceal the truth is as much a lie as saying something that's the opposite. You see, Sarah was actually his half sister, believe it or not. So she was the daughter, the daughter of his father, from a different mother. So technically, she is what. His sister or half sister right so he's they've been married right they are married but technically she's sort of his she's his sister but you know when you don't say that you're married um it sort of leaves everything open doesn't it okay so that is the part of the lie that he didn't share and he actually does the same pulls the same stunt again with uh, abimelech but when he does it with Abimelech, he actually confesses the truth. Actually, turn to Genesis 20, verse 12. Genesis 20, verse 
So here he confesses, he gets himself in the same mess that he does in this particular chapter. So he hasn't learned his lesson from the previous time. So Genesis 20:12 says, And yet indeed she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Okay? So you might say, how can someone marry their half-sister? Would that happen today? Well, probably not. That's just not even legal today. Where do we get that from? Yeah, from the Bible. Okay. But I want you to keep in mind, um, how much of the Old Testament was Abraham carrying around with him? How many books did he have? Zero. How long after did the commandments come to Moses? Over 400 years later. Right? So... Um, the same question gets raised by, you know, the, uh, the evolutionists when they talk about, well, who did Cain marry? Who did he marry? He may have married nieces, but brothers and sisters would have had to marry at the beginning. And so at this particular point, in this particular culture, it wasn't forbidden to marry your sister or your, let's say, half a sister. So he wasn't guilty of breaking a command of the law because the law hadn't actually even arrived at that particular point. But there was over 400 years that you would have to wait from Abraham's time to uh, receive the law that forbade the actual marrying. Okay, so was he guilty of lying? Well, yes, he was guilty of lying because he didn't disclose the truth, which made all the difference. He should have said, I'm married. Because at that particular point, um, Pharaoh decides to take Sarai into his own house. And he's looking after her in his own house. Okay, So what was the problem? The problem here, as Abraham entered into Egypt, was he began to use worldly thinking to get the job done. He was trying to, ever heard of the phrase, to outfox the fox? or to outplay the gambler, or to manipulate the truth in order to gain an upper hand on those who were trying to maybe manipulate him. See, what's interesting here is that he trusted God for the big promises, right? The ones that God had made him. But when it came to the little things like this, he said, God, step aside. I know how to take care of this one. I've seen this played out before. And I know exactly how to deal with these people. I'm going to lie my way through this thing. Do we, do we fall in the same trap? We do. You know what? The, one of the, the biggest um, contradictions that we have in our own lives is that we declare that we are trusting Jesus to save our eternal souls and give us a home in heaven for all of eternity and then we can't trust him for the simple things in life. In those little things, we have to jump in and sort them out. God, step aside. I know how to work this one out. And we fail that, this particular lesson over and over again. We jump in with all of our smart thinking. And we think that we know actually better than God. You see... Abraham left his whole country, left his people, and chose to go to a thing. He trusted God for that, but why didn't he trust him here? And it may have been 
because God had allowed him to revert back to his sensual or his old nature. And I'll tell you why. You know, when you go to a place like Abraham, he's moved out of his country, he's gone into Canaan, and all of a sudden there's a drought, there's a famine. What's the one thing your flesh is going to tell you in that position? Well, I'm hungry, but hang on a sec. If God's led me here, if there's a famine, maybe he doesn't have all the power. Maybe he actually can't control the rain. Maybe he can't, doesn't have the ability to be able to provide everything I need. So I'm going to have to do it myself. And when I'm in a foreign country where my God hasn't led me, well, I'm going to have to take care of things myself. You see, the flesh has very easy ways of justifying itself. And this is a common fail with believers as well. They conclude, or we conclude, that God is limited because when I pray to him about this particular thing, he didn't give it to me last time, so maybe he hasn't got the power to be able to do that, so I'm going to have to compromise my faith a bit here to get the job done. I'm going to have to use a bit of worldly wisdom to replace simple obedience to God. And Abraham didn't have the word of God, but what excuse have we got? We've got everything spelled out for us with very great detail. So Abraham lied, but we've got no excuse because the Bible says thou shalt not bear false witness. Ephesians 4.25 says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So we have no excuse. But do we lie? You see, Abraham lied because he left out something that actually made a big difference. When we speak, do we actually leave out stuff that actually makes the big difference as well? So that people don't get the full picture. We only want to get well, I only want them to see this part of the whole picture the picture because if I tell them the full story, they might think differently of me. We need to be careful that we speak the truth. It doesn't mean you've got to tell everyone every detail about your life. But if you're conveying something to someone, let's pray that, I pray that we don't lie on our taxes and tell people that we earned this much when you know there was another income coming in from somewhere else that we don't want them to know about. The Bible says we are to speak the truth with everyone. Now, am I saying not to go to a doctor when we get sick? Um, because we have to trust God to heal us. No, I'm not saying that at all. Nor am I saying that we should not work to earn money because God said that he would provide. You know, doing these types of things where you, where you rely on God and his provision uh, has brought many people in cults to complete ruin. There's a particular um, story that has been playing out in Queensland, I believe, about a family who believed that their daughter, that God wanted, or was supposed to heal their daughter from diabetes. I'm not sure if you've heard about it. And so they, they stopped giving their daughter insulin because they believed God was going to heal her. That girl died at eight years of age. And those parents are now being charged with murder. So where you've got the actual thing in front of you, 
and you don't do it. Like if, if your child was to break their leg or develop a thing, bring them to the doctor. I'm not talking about trusting God in ways that are, that are just ridiculous. What I'm saying is that we shouldn't compromise with sin when we are going through a trial. You see, that's the test of our faith. The test of our faith is if, am I going to get through this particular thing by maybe squeezing a line or maybe doing things that compromise my faith by doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing? We need to be careful that we don't compromise the word of God to help us get through things. That's when we need to be trusting God and following him in obedience. Abraham's problem is that he chose to fight fire with fire. And God hadn't called him to fight with fire. God had called him to be obedient. And so that's what we need to avoid. Look at verse 14 to 20 now as we wrap up. It says, And it came to pass that when Abraham was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and, and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh, and Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why, didst thou, why saidst thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to, to me to wife. Now therefore behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Do you think that Abraham might have been somewhat embarrassed by that particular encounter? Well, yes, he should have been. He should have been embarrassed because he was being rebuked for a thing that he should not have done. In fact, Pharaoh was good to him. He had taken advantage of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had given him things and looked, was looking after Sarah in his own house. And now he realizes this guy's lied to me the whole time. And God, on top of that, plagues Pharaoh with, with plagues. And he's giving Pharaoh a message. You better not mess around here. You better not take this next step or do what you think you want to do. You are stepping on dangerous ground. And so when Pharaoh starts getting all these plagues in his house, he realizes something's gone on. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how he discovered it. It doesn't say how he got to the, the, the thing that this is something going on. It could have been Sarah, who actually went to him and said, you know, this is, I'm actually married to him. Maybe he approached Sarah and said, would you like to marry me? Don't get me wrong, Pharaoh was a sinner. He was obviously a sinner and he wasn't a believer. But Abraham did the wrong thing in front of him. And that's a shameful thing when you think of it. You know, the, the, as growing up as a believer, um, when I was saved at 19 years of age, some of the most, um, what's the word? embarrassing times in my life 
was where someone who wasn't a believer rebuked me about something that I should have done. That's a big rebuke. And I think Abraham should have learned a lesson here because God was rebuking him through Pharaoh, through a, through a non-believer. And so the rebuke of an unbeliever should cause us really godly sorrow and embarrassment because they should be learning from us, not we through them. And so in this particular case, Abraham failed this particular um, lesson but we need to make sure that as believers, we are teaching them. They should be looking at our lives and should be learning about how to behave, about how to speak, about how to love. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. We are the ones who are meant to live with integrity in this world. There's another two things I just want to sh share with you about this particular event is that even though Abraham was doing something wrong, the grace of God was there still to protect him one thing for us as believers and we mess up we may make the wrong choices and wrong decisions we may not be learning the particular lesson but it's nice to know that the grace of god is to protect us from our own stupidity god protected abraham from something much worse if pharaoh had tried to take sarah by force can you imagine the consequences but God wasn't about to let that happen, was he? Um, he also protected Abraham from Pharaoh killing the lot of them. I'm assuming Pharaoh had enough power to kill him. Because if I was the king and someone had played this particular joke on me, he may have been tempted to actually kill the lot of them and keep all the stuff. But he didn't. So God protected him from that particular thing as well. So... If you're a child of God and you've been saved from your sin, be, be assured that God has probably saved you and protected you from plenty of bad decisions along the way. God does put a buffer between us and the worst consequences of our decisions. But don't rest on that. Because there may come a day when God says, he or she needs to learn a valuable lesson. And he may take that particular protection away and then you may fall flat on your face. Does that make sense? Don't take advantage of grace. If God gives it to us, praise God for it because it covers our weaknesses. But don't take advantage of the grace and mercy of God because you may find that he's going to teach you a very difficult lesson. If you do, we should never take God's grace in vain or for granted. We should be thankful for his mercy every day of our lives, but not take advantage of it. God says in Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Don't presume on the grace of God, nor his mercy, but be thankful that they're there. And if you think that Abraham got out of this particular thing scot-free, you'd be mistaken. And the reason I say that is that of all the possessions that he walked out of Egypt with, there was one possession that he gained in Egypt that was going to cause him a huge problem down the track. And that was a particular servant called Hagar. 
You see, he acquired Hagar in Egypt. So with all the stuff that he came out, and he might have thought to himself, look how good I've done here. I've come out of it. We're unscathed. I've come out of this thing with a whole lot of, you know, of extra goods. He came out with a, a serpent in the middle of it who would later be a huge, huge problem that would come back to bite him and bite his family and bite everyone down the line. You see, that blessing that God was doing through him, because of that thing that he did in Egypt, and then the consequence of after the decision they made with Hagar would cause all types of problems for his people down the, down the track. So sin, remember, is much like this. You may think that you've done a sin and you've gotten away with it scot-free. You may think that I'm, I'm doing something on a regular basis and, and you know, it's not, not a problem for me. I can take, take you know, control of it. It's not going to do... But it's always carrying something that's going to bite and you don't know when it's going to bite. So my counsel to you today is avoid at all costs. Don't carry sin with you because in that sin is something else that's going to affect you down the track. Abraham was going to discover that later on. My final point is this. In this sermon, um, we see Abraham, we see Sarah, and we see Pharaoh. Who don't we see? Lot. Where's Lot? Lot's with him the whole time. Lot didn't stay back. Lot's with him. And he's watching his uncle, this man of great faith, who he's following into the promised land, who he says, I've seen God. God has revealed himself to me. And now he's building altars and he's watching Abraham, this guy that he's looking up to with great faith. And now this guy, the same guy, is pulling shifties with, with Pharaoh and trying to take advantage of someone else and not telling the truth. How do you think that would have affected Lot? Lot was a silent witness here. He was watching everything that was going on. He saw how Abraham managed to gain wealth, take advantage of Pharaoh, and he used it all with trickery. He watched Abraham using worldly thinking to achieve his purposes. And we find out later that Lot begins to think the same way. So remember, every lesson that God has for you is not just for you. God may be allowing you to go through a trial or a suffering. That's not just for you. Because the way you respond to that is actually teaching the people around you how to live for God. Parents, be careful the way you speak around your children. Be careful the that you show them the decisions that you make because what they are doing is learning from you. And they think you have strong faith because you're the one to bring them to church, aren't you? You're the one who's telling them the way they should be, that they shouldn't be talking in bad language or whatever else it may be, but they're watching you. Mature believers, there are younger believers who are watching you. Be careful the way you behave around them. Be careful the choices you make because there are people who, are, who want to learn and they're looking up to you. So the decisions that we make 
while we are learning our own lessons, are also teaching others at the same time. Choose wisely. Because they, this is not just about me. This is about all of us. And God should be glorified always. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for that message, Pastor Frank. All right, uh, we're coming around the time of our final hymn this morning. If we could please be upstanding as we turn our hymn, hymn books to number 17, and we'll be singing Come Thou Fount. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for a beautiful morning that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for each and every heart that's in this place today. I pray that your word has touched them. Uh, Lord, I pray that you give us a good time of fellowship now uh, as we continue the rest of the Lord's Day. I pray that you uh, bring us back safely again next week, Lord, and that you bless the rest of the week ahead uh, with this message in the back of our minds, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. amen.